I get to preach the text today. I'm one of the pastors, and I get to open us up here. We're starting a new sermon series called Life in the Spirit. Now, spirit is a vague term. What is a spirit, right? Is it a thing that you drink too much of and have a headache the next day? Is that a spirit? Is a, is a spirit, you know, the attitude we have? Well, what a great, a good spirit in the room this morning. You know, everyone was lively and, and having a great time. What a great spirit. Is a, is a spirit someone who, uh, you know, loves to cheer for their school team? You know, like, man, they've got spirit, you know, and and so spirit is this term that everybody's, you know, like thinks that spirit is good, but actually the word spirit, um, the root of it actually comes from a similar root word in, in, in Greek as the word um, wind. You know, the, if you think about when the wind blows and the trees move, there's this thing you can't see that is energizing and moving all the things that are moving. And that's part of the idea here is when, when Jesus breathes into his people, he sends them the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the Lord, the giver of life, like we recite the Nicene Creed. And so the Holy Spirit is a person, unseen, that is moving us and directing us and leading us. It's a very personal thing. It's not a vibe. It's not an attitude. It's not something you drink. It's not a, a, a lively disposition of heart that you're cheering for your team. Uh, and what, why we're talking about this life in the Spirit section is because so often we as a church just function like there's only two people in the Trinity. There is the Father, the one who makes all things and sets the rules, and there's Jesus who died for us and saves us, yes and amen, and then we are left to our own devices to get it right, try harder, double down, it'll be different this time, this time will be different than last time, next time will be different than this time, and we kind of do this rinse, repeat cycle on try to be a better version of ourselves. And we believe Christ is risen, but our hearts functionally believe that we're left to our own devices. You know, I, I have a dad, he's a great dad, but so often part of like my temptation of what I like learn from my dad that I project onto God is this image of a coach, right? My dad is my basketball coach and you go to the sideline, he calls the plays, now it's now you get out there and do it and I'm going to stay on the sideline. <laughs> and so often I feel like that about the Lord, like he's going, all right, Seth, you're on the team, here are the plays, now go run them, and when it starts going bad, I'll call timeout, and we'll say, what's going on here? Why isn't this working? And I'm sure that some of you feel like that about timeout God, and so I think that Romans 8, here's the most important thing about Romans 8, is it comes right after Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, there's this inner dialogue about this person who's doing this me versus me thing. I want to follow the law of God, but the, the, the sinful flesh, my, my fleshly desires win the day all the time. And there's this me versus me internal tension. Here's what he says. He says, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. But it's no longer me who does it, but this other part of me that does it, that's inside of me. Nothing good dwells in me, but I do want to do the right and good thing. And I don't want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the evil thing. And this is Romans 7. It's this, this dialogue of this person who's doing this me versus me attempt at trying to follow. I don't want to do those bad things anymore. I keep doing those bad things. I want to be kind and treat people like this, but I keep treating, and so often Christians get stuck there. Certainly non-Christians are stuck there. But here's a key part of Romans chapter seven. Not once is the Holy Spirit mentioned. But then, in Romans chapter eight, no condemnation flows from Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set us free. And so my hope for us in this series as a church is that we 
mature into doing less of the me versus me internal dialogue and more of this ability to yield to the spirit who is driving us into fullness of life. And so Paul builds this argument in this, in this section, right? So if you're trying to interpret the Bible, so it says, the, there's no condemnation of those in Christ Jesus, verse two, four, verse three starts with the word four. He's building this kind of descending argument. So we're gonna, I'm gonna actually teach this four verses in reverse, starting with the back of the argument and then building the conclusion, no condemnation. All right, so let me pray, and then we're gonna start off talking about uh, death and the law. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will uh, drive my words and that you will condition our ears that we hear from you and that you would propel us to live as people who are actually controlled by you. That you wouldn't be an accessory in our lives, but you'd be a driver in our lives. God, convict us, encourage us, and empower us. In your name we pray, amen. So starting in the back end, chapter eight, verse four, uh, it says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the question here is like, what is the righteous requirement of the law? So here's the short answer, is the requirement of the law is that you be righteous. And the next question is, what's the requirement if we're unrighteous? And to answer this question, we have to go back to earlier into Romans. So we're with me in Romans chapter one. I have this on the screen here. Uh, this is describing the people breaking the law. It says, women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I love that term. He's like, this list is getting long and they'll keep making up ways to make it longer. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. So if you have a pulse and you heard me read that sentence, you realize that you now deserve to die. Those who practice those things deserve to die. That is the righteous requirement of the law. What is required? You die. What is required? I die. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We do what we want to do. God is not our God. God is our consultant. God is not our Lord. God is our advisor. God is not the interpreter of the universe. He is our helpful wisdom guru when we need a shot in the arm to feel good about our day. This is the universal human condition that we so often fall into these traps of unrighteousness. We functionally act like we are the Lord of the universe and we'll take God in consideration sometime. And God is not messing around with this. This is not a joke. We think so often about um, God's law as like just kind of something to have in the back burner to think about at some point and, and he's not having any of it. 
And so what does that mean? Should we all just be deeply anxious, awaiting our forthcoming destruction? Do we just sit and twiddle our thumbs going, you know, none of this matters because we're all just going to deserve to die? We're all like, hell's coming for all of us, so just sit around and, you know, eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow. You know, we just burn. Is that what we should do? Is that what's going on here? And what he says here is actually no. That God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is verse three. That Jesus Christ did not become sinful, but he took on flesh that is just like our sinful flesh. In sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that righteous requirement of law might be fulfilled in us. Saying, the death that you deserve, the righteous requirement of your sin that you should get, Christ comes and dies in our place so that the righteous requirement of the law is actually fulfilled. That because Christ died for our sin, the righteous requirement of our sin has been, that condition has been met. And so we are set free from this death. That rather than sitting around anxiously awaiting judgment, we get to sit around not anxiously awaiting judgment. You know, I was reading this morning to my son, The Cat in the Hat. It's kind of a creepy book. It's been a while. It's been a while. These kids are at home by themselves. An adult cat knocks on the door. It's like, don't tell your mom I'm here. We're here to have a good time. And it's like, ah, oh, gosh. I, and there's the fish who's like, this is not okay. We should not be doing this. And then they make a huge mess. And then it's like, oh, no, mom's coming home. Clean up the mess. And then he's got that kind of tractor thing with all the arms that picks up all the stuff which for a three-year-old boy is like the best part of the book, you know, a tractor with hands, you know, so. But it's like, oh no, mom's coming home. We better clean this mess up. Look out. I think Christians live with that kind of low-grade anxiety all the time. Oh no, the father's, he's gonna see. What are we gonna do? We gotta clean this mess up. And I'm just telling you, if you think Christianity is about cleaning your mess up so you don't disappoint your father, That's not my version of Christianity. (laughs) That's not the Bible's version of Christianity. The Bible's version of Christianity is you deserve to die and Jesus died in your place. So now what? I think we've all been in that position where we're trying to do the right thing so that the bad thing doesn't happen. You know, this gets to the discussion of law. How do we think about God's law? This, this is a big theme in this text, that God's law, you have the law of the spirit, you have the law of the flesh, what the law could do, what the law could not do. What exactly are you talking about as far as law goes here? So it says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Well, the first question there is, what was the law trying to do? What was the point of the law? Right, because we hear the word law and we project so much stuff into that word. Like crazy. Like I think about law and my, my first thought goes to uh, when I was in Washington, D.C. maybe like a year and a half, two years ago and Matthew and I actually went to a CrossFit gym to work out and the law at the time was you had to wear a mask while you worked out indoors and the, the, the leader of the CrossFit gym was like, hey, I'm really sorry, it's the law. I just don't want to get fined and so please follow the law so that we don't get fined and we're like, okay, fine. Uh, But then like the law was also like you could take the mask off when you ran outside. And so there's like this feeling of like you're working out inside, getting your heart rate up, sucking the paper mask into your mouth 
for health reasons, you know, and you're like, this is crazy. But then like the workout required that you like run outside to do a lap and come back in. And there's like this feeling of you go through the door and you just pull the mask off and like, then you're just like, finally, I'm not constrained by this stupid arbitrary law, you know? And, and I think that like, so if, if so often people think about God's law like that, that he's just strapping on restrictions and making you feel constrained, and then sometime you'll just like sin, and like finally I can breathe. I don't have to be weighed down by this law, and I don't want to do it. And this like law is like this arbitrary, bureaucratic, appease the constituents, not really rooted in any eternal reality thing. So we project that onto God's law. Then we also project other things on, like this this idea that like I'm only going to follow the law so that. I don't get slapped on the wrist. You know, where is, is, I don't know if Stephen's in here. Stephen asked if someone was doing proactive or reactive landscaping, which is the whole point was like, are you doing your landscaping so the HOA doesn't find you? Uh, or are you, doing the H, are you doing your landscaping because the HOA already find you? And you want, like there's <laughs> no, no framework in his mind of like, maybe you're doing landscaping because you want to like make your yard beautiful. <laughs> Not, a, it's like, you're only going to do the right thing to avoid the feet, right? That's the whole point, you know? Like, it'd be like if I told my wife, like, hey, honey, I love you. And I, you know, and uh, I'm not going to commit adultery because I don't want you to be mad at me. You know, it's like, oh, my. You should work for Hallmark, you know? Can you just... I'm going to do the right thing so that you're just not going to, like, give me garbage about it you know like that's not love that's is that the law and we think so we think about laws like arbitrary kind of legal stuff or we think about laws like gotta do the right thing otherwise God's gonna be mad and that's just not how it works instead like man, I, I, uh, I coached my first three-year-old soccer team this weekend <laughs> I gotta tell you there were no rules <laughs> kids were shooting at their own goals Kids were just checking in and out of the game all the time, like hockey sub rules. You know, I'm like, this is not how this works. You got to like signal a substitution, you know, and, you know, then it's like we're about 30 minutes in and like the tears per minute are just going like this, you know, just more and more sad. I'm like, man, the lack of rules is creating just chaos that's making this no fun for anybody, you know, and I'm regretting, like, maybe we should wait until five. I don't know, like, but maybe, but like if... If you think about the creator of the universe is giving instruction on how to inhabit his creation. He's creating order. He's cre- giving direction. He's saying, I made this world to be enjoyed and inhabited and I want to let you in on the best way to live in this world. You may not understand every dot of the law I'm trying to create, but I'm telling you, if you live in this world, you will flourish. Not only that, but when you're my people, you'll represent me and be a light to the nations and do well. Not only that, but I'm your father giving you instruction as my children on how best to live. I'm not here trying to steal your joy. I'm not here trying to just give you a mechanism by which you can make me not mad. I'm not here trying to just control your fun and regulate the good time. I'm I'm telling you, like, as father and creator, I'm trying to shape you into being the people that are going to make the best use of the creation. And here's what Paul says. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That even the best rules, the best stipulations, the best instruction, because we are sinners, 
we are programmed to turn it into what it's not supposed to be. We take good laws and good instructions and make them this kind of anxious, do the right thing game. And he's saying, I am sending you the Spirit to actually drive you by means of personal connection into the better way of being. Like when I have these moments as a parent where I feel like my three-year-old understands the why behind the what, okay, I feel like I'm beginning to get a glimpse of the father's heart for me as his child. It's not just about the what, it's about the why, and it's the father trying to give us the instruction, and that's the function of the spirit. He's translating the eternal father's words into our heart and connecting our heart to the father's heart such that now obedience is not just procedural or duty or pure submission, but it's actually compliance and being compelled and at the heart desiring something different, desiring what God wants. I don't just want what God wants so that I can not get hell. I want what God wants because what God wants is best and my heart is actually being pulled towards him in that direction. Next thing we get here is freedom. See this in verse two. The law of the spirit. So the rule of the spirit. Think about law and rule. It goes hand in hand like laws. The ruling of the spirit of life has set you free from Christ, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That these rules of sin and death, that so often one of the key functions of the law in God's word is that it teaches us that we are unable to obey. You read God's law, you go like, I tried, I can't. Good intentions, didn't work. Tried my hardest, didn't work. And so what the law becomes is this law of sin and death. It's just describing to you ways that you sin and it's causing you to result in this punishment of death. But here you have this law of the spirit, this rule of the spirit, this reign of the spirit setting you free. Like I think, and I probably, I know some of you in this room, you don't believe this. You think that becoming a Christian means letting go of your freedom. You think that choosing to follow Christ is you handing over the keys to the car. You think that constraint is the way of Christ. And here when he says, the law of the Spirit is setting you free, you're like, from what? Free from doing what I want? Finally, I don't have to do what I want anymore. Thank you, Jesus. Is that what's going on here? I think that we are in such a pleasure-seeking, live-for-the-moment, nihilistic, nothing really matters. All we have is like, I've, like the phrase, you know, here for a good time, not for a long time. <laughs> We're controlled by the fear of missing out. We're constantly looking at what other people are doing and trying to measure, am I maximizing my current moment in life? Am I, am I just... Are people actually happy? Or are they just telling themselves that they're happy because they're following some social script 
about accumulating stuff and giving your kids more stuff than your parents gave you, that's happiness. And then you give your kids more stuff than your parents gave you and then you're like, they all have serious anxiety disorders. Maybe the script of just more and bigger and the author of Hebrews says this, and this is a really important text in especially like Eastern Christian traditions like the Greek Orthodox Church. Uh, Through death he might destroy, that's Jesus, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What the author of Hebrews is arguing is that the fear of death is actually what leads you to slavery to sin. That because there's like this, I don't know how much time I got. I got to maximize my power and pleasure. What happens in the grave? I don't know. So I got to live for me now because my time is short. My time is measured. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. Do you really know what happens when you die? No. So I have to live for right now. I don't have time to have eternal vision. I don't even know about eternity. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. So I have to right now begin to medicate myself through pleasure. And what Paul and the author of Hebrews are arguing is that when you see that there is resurrection, when you see that I don't have to fear judgment, when you see that I no longer have to anxiously ask the question, am I doing enough? Am I doing better? It actually liberates you to be free to love with righteousness in the here and now without feeling like you have to angle to make sure that you're protecting yourself from all the possible missed opportunities. Because Christ conquered death, because his death was the payment required for our sin, we now have this ability to act with actual liberty. We can choose pleasure or we can choose not pleasure. We can choose righteousness or we can choose not justice. Our capacity, our, 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 the, the breadth of our options are way more available to us than ever before because we have eternity to taste and see the world. I don't have to do what I feel like needs to happen this weekend to make sure that I get the most out of life. Because you literally have all of eternity to see all of the world. So this maximize pleasure now equation goes away. And that's liberating. I'm not missing out. I'm on a different timeline. And this is one of the things that I think... Uh, where it starts to hit, this idea of condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was one of my first memory verses as, a serious, as someone who's actually following Jesus. If you're not a memory verse person, memorize this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a big fancy word. Condemned. And when I talked, I talked to a lot of you and I think that there's this assumption that most of the people in the room, uh, we have an arrogance problem. Like humans are arrogant. Again, I think that's kind of what I hear described a lot is we're haughty, high on ourselves, arrogant. And there's definitely a biblical category for that. And I think we all from time to time fall into the haughty, arrogant category. But I think self-hatred, self-loathing, 
self-disgust is a bigger theme for us. And I think that self-hatred, self-disgust comes from two things. There's really two sources. There's what you've done and there's what others have done to you. I know so many people who feel like I'm not valuable. I'm not uh, worthy of meaningful relationship or connection. I'm not... uh, important for someone else to like invest in and I, it's close to 50-50 but it's honestly a huge Venn diagram most people it's kind of this both thing of like because of what I've done because of what I've engaged in because of what I've seen because of what I've said because of what I just I'm just not valuable I'm I'm like that old car that wasn't taken care of that I never changed the oil and it's my fault, the engine blew up. <laughs> That's me. I didn't take care of myself, I didn't do the right stuff and now the transmission's blown and it costs five grand to change the transmission and the car's worth like three grand so scrap it, crush it. And other people who are going, if I'm actually valuable, if I'm actually important, if I'm actually worth investing in, if I'm actually worth something why do people treat me like this? Why have people done this to me? Why have people not done this to me? Why was I not pursued? Why was I pursued in this way? Why have I only ever been considered in this way? Why have I, and the list of uh, dehumanizing receiving it. Like, and so that's what the word condemned means, right? You drive, you see like an old building and if the government calls it condemned, what you're saying is it's not fit, unoccupiable, got to tear it down. Or here's the things that have to change in this building before it's worthy of occupation. Unfit for use. And you read Romans 7, and this guy is seeing himself as unfit for use. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord that there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not just a promise of no hell. This is a promise of fit for service, valuable, occupiable, worth something, meaningful, able to make a contribution, structurally sound, capable, ready to be enabled. By the power of the Spirit, the people who are cleansed in the blood of Jesus are worthy and valuable and usable and worth pursuing and worth being known and definitely have a role to play in the kingdom of God. And that's not just because of us, but it's because of God's work in us that we are cleansed in the blood of Jesus. We're not just getting flipped and sold, we're being flipped and inhabited by the Spirit of God. How could I house the Spirit of God inside of me when I am this? Paul is saying, because Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in his death, you now are inhabited by the Spirit. And I think that if we really believe the gospel, 
If we really grasped and understood the power of the cleansing work of Jesus and the empowering work of the Spirit, we would get mistaken as arrogant people a lot more. (laughs) And I'm not saying we should be arrogant people. I want to be very clear about that. But people would accidentally think we're arrogant because we're going, I am a prince or princess of God most high. So I'm not going to be treated like that. I don't have time for this petty dealings with you who are all paralyzed by the fear of death or who are going to act and treat me in a way that makes me not valuable. I'm not doing that because I am valuable and I'm not going to deal with this. That when you know who your dad is, you know what level of respect you should be getting. When my dad was the head coach at Chandler High, I remember walking into that gym like I own the place. There's a high school basketball game going on and there's this long line of people waiting to buy tickets and I just walk right past the line. Coach's son, I'm in here. I'm not waiting in this line and I'm not paying extra. And I think that there's this long line of religious people trying to pay their way in, trying to, you know, and we're going like, I'm, not, I'm, I'm God's son, I'm God's daughter. I'm not waiting in this line and I'm not paying extra. It's all paid and I'm empowered by the Spirit. And so the function of the Spirit in our hearts is to cause us to desire the Spirit to lead us. Because when we're operating in the law of the flesh, our life looks like this, this constant question. Here's the question apart from the Spirit that dominates people's minds. Do I want to feel good or do I want to feel good about myself? And that's how people make choices. I could do this stuff, but I also want to like myself. Do I want to eat 12 donuts or do I want to like myself? You know, like that's, do I want to have sex outside of marriage or do I want to have self-respect? Do I want to steal that money and cut corners or do I want to feel good about myself? Do I want to do the good thing? Like do I want to, do I want to feel good or do I want to feel good about myself? And you're stuck in this tension. But when the spirit of God comes in your life, That's not the question. It's not feel good, feel good about myself. The question is, do I want to run my life or do I want God to run my life? And when God's running my life, the creator of the universe, the father, the holy one, the lover, the one who's been practicing how to love for eternity, sets the agenda. And when my heart is lined with his heart, I'm not stuck in this like myself, have a good time back and forth like all my non-Christian friends that's where they're stuck everyone wants to have discipline everyone wants to let loose and they flip back and forth all the time versus being controlled constrained liberated set free mobilized washed cleansed empowered fit for use occupied by the spirit of God there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in likeness of sin flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. 
that Christ was condemned so that I am not condemned, that the Spirit moves me so I don't have to move myself, that God is changing my desires and transforming my wanters so that I want the things that God wants for me. This is the path that God has for us. And the rest of the series, we're gonna be unpacking how do we actually walk in that path? Functionally, how does that play out? How do I be more controlled by the Spirit and less controlled by my sinful flesh? And it takes Paul a whole chapter to unpack that. And it's going to take us a whole sermon series to unpack that as well. So let me pray for us and for our sermon series. Lord Jesus, I ask that you will lead us by your Spirit. Give us fresh and new hearts. God, the anxiety that's in the room about trying to maximize pleasure or feel good about ourselves, I ask that you will set us free from that, that rather than trying to prove ourselves to ourselves or prove ourselves to you, that we would see ourselves as loved, chosen, holy, not condemned, occupiable. God, I pray for the sermon series that we would walk in the spirit as a church in a way we never have before. And I pray that as individuals, that our self-hatred, our self-loathing, both for things you've done and things that have been done to us, that you begin to heal us from that. And we'd walk with our um, heads held high knowing there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.